0: But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Beloved, as the Lord has called us to worship, let us ask for His blessing on this time in which we are gathered. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that all that we do in this time of worship might be pleasing and honoring in your sight. Grant that your word might come forth with faithfulness and be received with gratitude and with joy and cause our hearts to overflow in worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Hear now his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's sing praise to the Lord from Psalm 95, Selection B. 95B, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. our hearts and voices, with those of the saints the world over, in confessing the Lord, using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, Our psalm reading this evening is uh, Psalm 106. And this is probably one of the later psalms in terms of composition. The uh, closing verses demonstrate that it was written during the exile. And the psalmist, well, it's a song of praise. But far more than that, it's a a plea for help. Notice how the psalmist uh, goes through the history of God's people and points out how graciously God has treated them and how they nonetheless sinned and rebelled against him and had to be punished and fell away. But then they repented and they turned back and the Lord restored them again. And he shows this cycle that demonstrates to us how little man can be trusted, no matter how good God is to us. We respond wrongly. There is never a time when we can say, well, God has brought me thus far, I'll take it from here. This is a humbling psalm. And yet, at the same time, it's an encouraging psalm. Because God continues to restore His people despite their unworthiness. And as such, this is a psalm that points forward to Christ. And demonstrates that nothing men do lasts. Men are not steadfast. Men cannot stand on their own two feet. We need the salvation that God alone provides. We need the steadfastness and the perseverance that God alone empowers. And that's what he did in sending Jesus. So this is a psalm that pleads for the coming of Christ. That's the the end of this psalm, is a plea for the coming of Christ, a plea for the end, not merely of an earthly exile, but of a spiritual exile in which God's people continue to go astray from Him. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake. That he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works, they did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the holy one of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf at Horeb. And worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land. Having no faith in his promise, they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spring bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the people's as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, when they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. What a beautiful plea, huh? The more we recognize the ugliness of our sin as a people, and we can't read this psalm and say, Oh, those terrible Israelites. Notice how he. He looks at what's happened over centuries and he says, we and our father sinned. He owns it as we must. But how brightly shines the grace and the glory of God against the darkness of that sin. So let's take up the start of this psalm, which leads us to celebrate the Lord, but also to acknowledge our sin as we sing number 106, Selection B, the first five verses, the first, uh, first five stanzas. In the light of that psalm, let's uh, confess our sins and those of our fathers, but also the greatness and the faithfulness of our God. Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, may You indeed be glorified and Your name be lifted on high, for we have seen how You have blessed our people. We know how you have restored your church time and time again. You are the one who 500 years ago, when the church was a shell of itself, when the people had forgotten, when our fathers had forgotten your word and had replaced your truth with empty tradition, you raised up men who found Your word anew, who proclaimed your truths, who removed all the statues and idols that were being worshiped instead of you and called the people to hear the living word and to proclaim the truth of the living God. And as the years passed and the people turned once more to superstition and replaced your good wisdom with the emptiness of of men's philosophy. You caused the church to fall into disarray once more so that your people would be moved to stand up and plead for something better, to return once more to your word, to reform your worship by the power that you gave them, and to teach their children the glories of the covenant. Father, we are the heirs of that teaching. We are the ones who were raised, many of us, with the faithful proclamation of your word and with worship as you had commanded. And yet we know that we and our fathers have struggled to stay steadfast. Among our tradition of churches, there have been many who have compromised, preferring preferring the approval of men over faithfulness to your word, twisting and ignoring your word for the sake of societal acceptance. And Father, we know the temptation because we know that desire to have men pat us on the back and welcome us as their brothers when they do not trust in You, when they do not know Your Word, when they do not fear the Lord. And when we have stood firm, far too often we have preferred traditionalism over faithfulness or have allowed our lips to fall silent rather than proclaiming the Word when it would be uncomfortable. Forgive us, Father, and restore Your people with a fervor and a passion that rests on our gratitude to Christ. Enable us to see, Lord, that it is not the approval of men, nor the warm, fuzzy feelings of tradition that stand at the heart of our identity or at the heart of our hope, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the true and unchanging word that you have entrusted to us. Make us, Father, to be more faithful than our fathers and cause our children to be more faithful than we have been. That That your truth might be set before an unbelieving world as a witness to them. That they might know that in Christ alone is found the way and the truth and the life and that no one can come to the Father but by Him. That they might see that that word is before them accessible to them and that by believing that they might have life father make us so to love our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors and co-workers and friends that we would be unwilling to be silent before them about the truth that has saved us and the savior who has bought us body and soul to be his own but make us to be bold in proclaiming what christ has done and what he is doing And make us to be faithful in living a life that demonstrates the power of the Spirit to transform those who are yours. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to show forth the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of your word in every place where you put us. Whether as parents teaching our children at home, or as employees or supervisors in a place of work, or as elected officials out in society, or as leaders of the church within these walls. Father, cause us to be bold in proclaiming the truth and proclaiming the promised grace that comes to all who take hold of it. And lead us, Lord, to proclaim your praises no matter what the day, no matter what the year, no matter what the lifetime holds. Whether sunny days or cloudy whether struggle or celebration. Cause us to proclaim your goodness in the midst of it, knowing that you are the one who delivers us, that you are the one who brings us through, that our life and our breath and our everything abide in you. And Father, we pray that you would spread your church, that you would spread it in places where the the truth has not been known, that you would cause it to be received, by those in our own land who for generations have not been taught your truth. We pray that you would bless those mission works in our land that have been raised up. We think especially today of the work in Madison, Indiana. And Brother Welch, as he proclaims the word there, continue, Lord, to bless them and to draw in among them those whom you have ordained for eternal life. Cause them, we pray, to ensure that the word is proclaimed faithfully, to teach men, to lead the church. We pray that you would raise up leaders for them and that you would give them a place to worship where where the gospel can go forth with power and where it can be applied to every aspect of life. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be passionate about that, passionate about knowing what it means as Christians to live in all of life as your subjects and servants. To demonstrate our gratitude to you in the way, that we, the way that we think and the way that we speak. The way that we use our money and the way that we parent our children. The way that we work and the way that we play. So that there might be no doubt in those who know us that you have made a radical change. And Father, we bring before you this day our nation. This land has so fallen from you, turning away from the truth by which men might be saved. We pray, Father, that you would open the hearts of many. That they might perceive the emptiness and the ugliness of unbelief. And that they might long for deliverance from the sin that has ensnared them. And open their ears to hear and their eyes to see when they encounter us as your servants. Grant us the courage, the wisdom, and the grace to speak the word that they need to hear. Not only us here at Grace, but your people in every place where they are gathered and discipled and taught. Father, we pray that you would bless your church richly. We ask that you would continue to raise up for us elders and deacons and ministers who are are faithful and committed to your word and equipped by your spirit. Bless us in our congregational meeting this week that we might be guided in the way that we should go and united in our love for you and for one another. We pray that you would bless our uh, consistory and council as they meet, that you would give them wisdom by which the church might be blessed. And we pray, Father, for each of the needs of this congregation. For those who are struggling with cancer, for those recovering from surgeries, for those who are are sick with ailments of the season, for those who are struggling in a variety of ways, Lord, we ask that you would provide the healing and the help and the restoration they need. And Lord, when we receive that help, enable us to recognize that it has come from your hand that we might proclaim boldly and openly where our help is found, that others' hearing might turn to you as well. And now, Lord, as we look to your word, we pray that you would cause that word to root deeply in our hearts, equipping us well to give a reason for the hope that is within us to all who ask. Lord, make us to be your faithful disciples. Filled with love toward you and gratitude for all that you have done. This we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we turn to our sermon text, uh, let's stand and sing again from Psalm 106. We're going to sing from the end of the Psalm, uh, stanzas 10 through 14 of 106b. 10 through 14. Well, this evening we're going to look together to Lord's Day 15 and the truths of God's Word that are summarized there. But first, I'd like to read with you from Luke 22 and 23. We're going to read just a, a few verses at the end of chapter 22 and then the first 25 verses of Luke 23. Beginning in verse 66 of Luke 22, Luke says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds. But he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Amen. Now, Lord's Day 15, you can find that in your Forms and Prayers book if you'd like to read along, page 216. Lord's Day 15 leads us further into our confession in the Apostles' Creed and asks, what do you understand... By confessing the word suffered concerning Jesus. And the answer we give is that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us body and soul from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by an earthly judge, and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes. By this death, I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are relatively skilled at looking the way Christians are supposed to look. We dress modestly and respectfully. We avoid cursing, taking the Lord's name in vain. We uh, we attend church faithfully, knowing just when to stand and when to sit. We're well-practiced at avoiding obvious sins. And Equally is practiced at hiding less obvious ones. Looking like Christians is something that we do well. The question is why? Why do we strive to look this way? Why do we bother attending to how we dress and how we speak? What does it matter to us that we avoid work and attend church on the Lord's Day? What is it that drives us to avoid sin and to avoid the appearance of sin? Why do we strive to look this way? That's a telling question because there are multitudes of wrong answers to it. If we're doing this, if we're striving to look this way, in order to somehow earn favor with God, not only is that not a good idea, it's wicked. And if we're doing it because we think it is essential to earn the privilege of men, again, we're only adding to our condemnation. And if we cultivate our upright appearance in order to feel confident through those deeds that God loves us, well, we're seeking our confidence in all the wrong places. The only confidence we can legitimately have, the only trustworthy source of hope, is in Christ and in what He has done. And if we really grasp what He has done for us to save us, It will drive us to behave in a way that honors God because we are filled with gratitude. Gratitude is what ought to drive our behavior. And it will, if we consider regularly and honestly, what Jesus did to save us. And that's the point of the catechism text we just read. Lord's Day 15 calls us to consider what Jesus did, the price that Jesus paid in order to save us. And what wonderful timing it is for us to do that. On the one hand, because we're preparing to partake of the Lord's Supper next week, it is exceedingly helpful for us to remember the significance of what is shown to us in that sacrament. The price that Jesus paid, that is symbolized by that breaking of bread and that pouring out of wine. But also, due to the season in which we find ourselves. As we prepare to consider together and to celebrate together the birth of our Lord Jesus the start of his earthly life, it is exceedingly helpful to remember the end of his earthly life, the goal toward which it all tended. And that goal is both simple and profound. God the Son suffered so that we could escape judgment for our sin. That is our theme this evening. And that is the cause for the gratitude that should determine how we live and why we live that way. God the Son suffered so that we could escape judgment for our sin. And as we consider, begin considering that, we're actually going to uh, dive right into the middle of what is described in this Lord's Day. Because this Lord's Day is written in such a way that it it emphasizes the effects right up front. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. We're going to look at the meat of what he actually did and its significance. So we're going to look first at how he was sentenced to suffer by an authority of men. Because you see, there's a problem with Jesus having suffered for us. The problem is that he didn't commit the sins, we did. We did. We were the ones who rebelled against God. We were the ones who refused to exercise the dominion for which we were created. It was us who put love for self over love for God. Unless something is done formally to transfer our guilt to Christ, then his suffering would have no real effect on us. It would have no impact on us. It's a, simil- a situation with similarity to a plea bargain in the criminal court system. You understand what a plea bargain is. The criminal agrees to plead guilty to certain charges and in return the state agrees to be uh, somewhat lenient in its sentencing. And there's always a benefit to the state in a plea bargain, otherwise they won't do it, right? So maybe the, the accused individual is able to provide evidence that will incriminate others, or maybe he's willing to testify in the trial of someone else. Or maybe uh, he's willing to plead guilty and allow the state to avoid the expense of a long and drawn out trial. For whatever reason, there's a benefit to the state. And there's a negotiation process in that, right? The attorney for the accused speaks to the state attorney describes what evidence the man's willing to give, what plea he's willing to make. they negotiate the particular charges to which he will plead guilty. The uh, sentencing is discussed and what the state's attorney will recommend, and et cetera, et cetera. There's promises made, agreements arrived at. However, none of that is official. Even when all the parties have agreed, even when it's all down on paper, none of it means a thing until it's all presented to the judge and he approves it. They can do all of their negotiations, make all of their promises, and if it comes before the judge and he says no, then it is all null and void. Because you see, it is not the state's attorney, and it is not the attorney for the accused, and it is not the accused himself, and it's not any of the other parties involved who are ultimately responsible for ensuring that justice is done. It is the judge who has been entrusted by the state with ensuring that justice is carried out. And more than that, it is the judge who has been raised up and entrusted by God himself for ensuring that justice is done. So if he looks at that plea bargain and he says, this is not just, this is not okay, none of it matters. He can simply say no. Well, Jesus suffered. And he suffered from the very start of his earthly life. Simply to be conceived in the midst of a fallen and broken world was an act of intense humility for the one who had spent eternity in the glory and grandeur of heaven. It was an act of unbelievable condescension when he consented to come and to live as the child of A sinful couple in the midst of a sin-filled house, in the middle of a sin-soaked community. And the years that followed were filled with suffering. The holy God surrounded himself with those who steeped themselves in sin and rebellion. The creator of perfection entered into the brokenness of a fallen world. He endured the ugliness of allowing selfish and thoughtless men to offend him, not to mention all of the sickness and the sorrow and the struggle into which he plunged himself. All of that was suffering. All of that was endured for us. However, his suffering was not counted as being for us until he was sentenced. Now, to be sure, God the Father ordained it all. He decreed that Jesus should enter a lifetime of suffering. He determined for whom Jesus would suffer and the result of that suffering and for whom that result would come. Jesus came by his own admission, not to do his will, but the will of the Father who sent him. Nonetheless, God had to ratify that decree, publicly acknowledging the propriety of Jesus' suffering, formally decreeing that Jesus was satisfying the debt of justice. And for that to occur, a representative of God, a governor, a magistrate who had been properly established by men, but more than that, properly ordained of God, must acknowledge that Jesus was innocent of wrongdoing, but that Jesus was sentenced to die for sin. And that was the role of Pilate. We witnessed Pilate's work in Luke 23. Members of the Jewish council brought Jesus before him, demanding Jesus' death on the basis of three charges of wrongdoing. The first two were absolute outright lies. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. He did neither of those. Matter of fact, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar is exactly what he didn't do. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's. That's what Jesus did. And misleading the nation, he told them nothing but the truth. It just happened that the truth offended these leaders. So those were lies. But the third was true. It simply wasn't wrong or censurable. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate did what the governor was commanded to do. He investigated He heard the charges and weighed them. He cross-examined the accused man. There was no evidence to examine that we know of. But he did his diligence. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. He's done nothing wrong. And yet to eliminate all doubt... He went above and beyond, sending Jesus to Herod. You know what? The man is from Galilee. The alleged crimes occurred in Galilee. Herod is the leader over Galilee, the governor in that region. So he sent him to Herod, and Herod did the same. Herod cross-examined him, although Jesus invoked his right to not incriminate himself, to not speak. He asked for evidence. He heard the accusations of... Jesus' enemies. And then Herod sent him back unsentenced because there was no guilt, because there was no wrongdoing for which to punish him. And so receiving Jesus back again, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Pilate was convinced. Jesus was innocent. He openly declared there was no cause for punishing him. But that was insufficient in the judgment of the Jews. Verse 18, they cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. They were not interested in evidence demonstrating Jesus' guilt. Stirred up by wicked leaders, they wanted blood. Verse 21, they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Again, the crowd is unwilling to hear Pilate's legitimate and just verdict. Stirred up by their Religious political leaders, led by their lies, they were convinced that Jesus needed to die. Pilate stood firm. But, verse 23, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Their voices prevailed. And Pilate did what God had ordained. Although he knew and had openly declared that Jesus was innocent had done nothing censurable. Nonetheless, because of the insistent demand of the crowd, verse 24, Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And thus, by formally sentencing Jesus to death, Pilate stamped Jesus' death with the authority of God himself. And that was Jesus' purpose from the start. It was not enough that he should suffer, nor was it enough that he should die. Jesus had to be sentenced by a divinely appointed authority. Only in that way could he suffer for us as a penalty handed down by God. And as soon as that sentence was uttered, the suffering of Jesus was magnified. Previously, his suffering had been, on the whole, rather general. The suffering that men in common experience. Suffering of the sort that we ourselves have had to endure. Because his suffering was the consequence of living in a fallen world surrounded by sinful people. The struggles of a life filled with sin. The offenses that come when you're surrounded by sinful people. The hurt that comes from living in a world that is fallen and broken. But now he would suffer not simply by virtue of being in a fallen world, but as a punishment directly for sin. And that's our second point. Jesus was cursed to carry Wrath from God. Understand, God's wrath is no joke. The little book of Nahum was written to reveal God's wrath against the people of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was an ancient city in Assyria, north of Israel. Nineveh was an exceedingly rich, large, glorious city. And it got that way because of all the people they plundered and all the people they mistreated, including the people of God. And so God vowed to punish their sin, which is what the book of Nahum declares at the very start of that book. He says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Our God doesn't joke around when it comes to punishing sin. Because sin is an offense against his holiness. It is a, a perversion of the very cause for which man was created and designed. And it angers God. Understand, you know, we, we, we love quoting First uh, John in saying that God is love. He is love. But he is also. The vengeful God who is filled with wrath against those who exercise the gifts He's given in a way that is rebellious and wicked and hateful. And He's able to punish them. Nahum writes The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel. Those are mountains. Wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Our God's wrath is no joke. The very world writhes and recoils from him. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. This is what our sin deserves. This is what we, if we continue to bear the guilt of our sin, that's what we have to face. That's what we have to endure. Wrath that would utterly destroy the creation itself. And that's what we have to face. Israel understood that. God ensured that they would understand it. Every year, they were to gather together for three feasts, one of which was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 describes that Day of Atonement and the lessons that it was to convey. On that day, the people would gather before the temple. They were to afflict themselves. They were to uh, repent and grieve because of their sin. The priest would offer sacrifices and shed blood that was meant to cover the sins of the priesthood, first of all. But then he would bring forward two goats. The first goat was to show Israel the destruction of God's, brought by God's wrath that was due because of their sin. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. And bring its blood inside the veil. Understand, this killing of the goat happened before the people. They were watching as he killed this goat and poured out its blood. And he is to do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, which was for the the priest's sins sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat, thus making atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And everything else, he had to purify with the blood of this goat that died because of their sin this goat that died as a substitute for them, this goat that would have to have its lifeblood poured out. Remember that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When that wine is poured out, that's representative of Jesus' blood being poured out for us. That's what happened to our substitute, right? And Israel saw that year after year after year, how the blood of this goat who stood for them had to be poured out until he was no more. And then its body would be destroyed. In flames annihilated by the wrath of God but that wasn't it that wasn't all after the first goat was dealt with demonstrating to them the wrath of God against their sin the second goat was brought forward And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of that goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The wilderness is representative of exile from God and his favor. Because that too is what our sins deserve. The people would watch all of their sins be confessed over this goat. And then he would go away to a place that was absent of God's blessing. Absent of the signs of life and favor and prosperity a place where it would assuredly die, probably a slow and painful death. Because that's what we deserve. That's what the wrath of God against our sin looks like. Utter destruction and also absolute exile. Unless someone takes it for us. And that's why Jesus came. The crowd in Luke 23, they weren't thinking about the Day of Atonement. Goaded on by the Jewish council. They just wanted Jesus gone. Their leaders had convinced them that he was a troublemaker who was threatening Israel's peace. Their leaders assured them, you get rid of him and we have peace. We have security before our Roman overlords. And so they wanted Jesus silenced and made an example. They called for his death to show what happened to those who threatened their peace. They called for him to be crucified. Because they understood crucifixion was the worst way you could die. It was painful, it was slow, it was public, and it was ugly. They wanted him to be an example. This is what happens when you threaten our traditions and our ways. This is what happens when you go against our people and our leaders. This is what happens when you threaten our peace. They wanted him gone in a manner that would leave an impression on the people. But unintentionally, they caused him to become the sacrificial goat. Luke 23, verse 21, they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! What they forgot was that in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, God declared that a man who was killed by hanging him on a tree, which is what a cross is, Suspending him in that way between heaven and earth, declaring that he was an exile from both mankind and God himself. Made that man a symbol of God's curse against sin. Made that man a demonstration of the goat sent out into exile as a consequence of sin. That's why God said in Deuteronomy 21... Don't leave him there overnight, because that sign of my curse should not endure over the land. And not only was he a sign of God's exiling curse against sin, but in the utter and absolute destruction that was wrought against him on that cross. He was a demonstration of that first goat, and the wrath of God that utterly demolishes the one who bears sin and guilt in the presence of God. And that's why Jesus came. Having been formally sentenced by a judge so that he could justly take our place, he fulfilled the images of the Day of Atonement, both allowing himself to be utterly shattered and destroyed on the cross and then hanging there as a sign of God's exiling curse, all of which is what our sins deserved. And that's what had to happen Galatians 3 verse 13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And Romans 3 verse 26 says that this was to show His righteousness, God's righteousness at the present time. So that He might be just in destroying Jesus for our sin but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Only by means of his crucifixion could Jesus do that. And he did for us. Because he did, we are able to obtain life. And that's the last lesson we draw from Lord's Day 15. But it's an essential lesson. In suffering, so that we could escape God's judgment, Jesus was gracious to grant life... Amidst peace. That's our last point. Understand, to escape judgment and to find peace with God, we need two things. The first is propitiation. Propitiation is a fancy word that means satisfying, paying for, accepting in oneself all that was due for sin so as to turn away God's wrath. The punishment had to be paid, had to be accepted, had to be endured, either by us or by another. And so Jesus took it in our place. He suffered the wrath that we deserved. He endured it for us so that we could escape. Again from Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift... Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In suffering and dying, Jesus accomplished for us propitiation for our sin, for our guilt. But we needed also something else. Not only propitiation, but also to be made righteous in God's sight. And that too Jesus accomplished for us. Remember, Jesus was... Always, not just from his conception, but from all eternity, absolutely, 100%, without exception, holy. Never was he defiled by a sin that he committed. Never was he guilty of even one slip-up concerning God's law. And unknowingly, Pilate confirmed it, not once, not twice, three times. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, "I find no guilt in this man. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him." The third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Jesus was perfectly righteous and we see it in the judgment of the judge. He was looking. Pilate was a politician. If he could satisfy the people, he was all about that. He he had a long track record of demonstrating that. That's why they weren't afraid to bring him to Pilate. They knew he was a people pleaser. They knew his fear of man. They didn't anticipate he would be such an upright guy. But three times he says, I find no guilt in him because Jesus was completely and entirely righteous. And therefore he was able to impute his righteousness to us, and he did. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him, we might become. So that through the imputation of his righteousness, we might be regarded by God as righteous. As we hear in Romans 3. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It was just as Israel saw year after year after year at Yom Kippur. Because of the lamb slain, to take the punishment for their sins propitiating for them. Because of the lamb cut off to take the consequence of their sin, therefore... Leviticus 16, verse 30. On this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sin. Which is to say, all of your guilt gone. Righteous in God's sight. And that ultimately is what Luke's account shows in recounting Jesus' death. Although he was innocent, he was condemned. Not just killed, but crucified as a sign of God's curse, of God's wrath against sin. Killed in a manner that showed him cut off and destroyed because of our sin. But Barabbas. Don't forget about Barabbas. Barabbas had already been tried, had already been condemned as a rebel. There was evidence aplenty plenty of his unwillingness to submit to the authorities over him and, for that matter, to submit to God. And more than that, not only was he a rebel, not only was he an insurrectionist, but he was a murderer. A man who had either committed himself or had led others to commit murder, killing of those who did not deserve to die. Barabbas was worthy of death and judgment and hell. And yet Barabbas was pardoned instead of the innocent one. Barabbas was pardoned instead of the righteous one. Luke 23, verse 25. Pilate released the men who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Barabbas was set free. Because Jesus, the substitute, suffered and died in his place. And my friends, we are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. We are rebels. We were from the word go. Nobody had to teach you when you were a child to tell your parents no. Come here, no. Sit down there, no. Why? Because you were a rebel from the very start. Nobody had to teach you to be a murderer, and yet that hatred rose up in your heart the first time that sibling or that friend grabbed the toy that you wanted. From the very start, we were rebels, we were murderers, we were Barabbas, we were worthy of God's wrath, even when we were little children. We deserved the same destruction that Barabbas deserved, all of us, and yet Jesus suffered, Jesus was cut off, Jesus died in our place if we trust in him. For everyone who puts faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus endured all that they deserved. For everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfection is attributed to them, imputed to their account. And therefore, though Jesus died, though his body was broken and his lifeblood was poured out on that cross... To us has been granted life and peace everlasting entirely through the grace earned when God the Son suffered for us. It is only if we recognize that reality that our confidence will be well grounded and that our behavior will be filled by, led by, motivated by a gratitude that arises from the heart. But if we do recognize that God the Son suffered so that we could escape the judgment for our sin, then we will have a confidence for the future that no one can shake, and we will live in a way that exudes our gratitude, that demonstrates to everyone that we are thankful to the very end that the Son of God was willing to love us to that end, to that extent, and to welcome us into the presence of our Heavenly Father. That's the greatest gift we could ever be given. And that is what will motivate us to live and to act and to speak and to desire in a way that makes the world scratch its head. May our lives be aimed at giving him glory because of our gratitude for all that he has done. In rescuing us from the punishment we were due. And ushering us into the glory that he alone could deserve. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have given to us and done for us what no one else could give or do. And that thereby we can have utter and complete confidence that we have life eternal that no one can snatch away. As we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, Father, we ask that you would enable us to meditate deeply on the price that Jesus paid that we might live. And as we prepare to celebrate his birth, as we gather with family and friends and celebrate traditions and and give gifts, grant that we might remember the greatest gift which Jesus gave in offering up himself in our place the innocent one, to deliver the guilty. Father, we thank you for loving us so much as to choose us as your very own. May you receive all the glory and honor now and evermore. Amen. In response to what the Lord Jesus has done for us, Let's stand and sing number 338. When I survey the wondrous cross, we'll sing all the stanzas. Number 338. Our offering this evening is for the Christian Education Assistance Fund. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word by which our children might be educated in the truth. We thank you, Father, that you have given us both families that homeschool and Christian day schools by which your word might be integrated into their lessons. And we pray that you would bless those efforts one and all. And bless our offering this evening for the Christian Education Fund. We ask that you would bless it and that you would use it in a way that would bring honor and glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this evening is number 330, Who is this so weak and helpless?